Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we proudly bring to you Mormonism Live! Shut up and sit down. Good evening, Mr. Real. RFM, here we are. It is a beautiful Wednesday evening. It is. And uh, we're getting ready to start another episode of Mormonism Live. I shaved tonight. I actually cut myself shaving. So if I start to see, it was just a couple minutes ago. So hopefully I'm not still bleeding. But I noticed when I shave RFM that the spot, you know the spot that hurts the most when you shave with a razor? Um, no. Which spot on your face hurts the most? All of like it. Like it's the most uncomfortable to shave. Um, I, I don't know. You, well, for me, no it's idea. like right here. And so what I'm wondering is if like we, we you know, Adolf Hitler, for instance, I saw this mustache on somebody else the other day, but the Hitler mustache, I, I'm beginning to wonder if maybe he had the same problem. That's where it hurt the most. And he just had a lower tolerance of pain and uh, ended up with a little mustache because he didn't want to shave that spot because it hurt too bad. I, I, I dread every time I shave right underneath my nose with a razor. Oh, you must be talking about the filtrum. I don't know what the filtrum is, but if you say so. the little spot under your nose that you nick every time when you're shaving with a razor. Yeah, yeah. So that's the spot that hurts the most. I think Hitler was just trying to avoid that. Yes. He was ahead of his time. <laughs> okay. Uh, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you. I just awesome. want to know, where is Maven and what have you done with her, Mr. Real? I don't know. She's MIA at the moment. So I sent her a text to see where she's at, but we're going to proceed without her. It's just going to be a little... Uh, probably going to stumble just a little more. Um, She's by, MIA and AWOL. Yeah. And uh, yeah. Um, yes. And we're SOL until she gets back. <laughs> but no, we'll we'll continue here without. I'm sure she'll pop in here any minute. Something's probably going on. Got stuck in a traffic jam or something. Yeah. Um, um, so I'm so excited. I'm so ex- I think she just forgot it was Wednesday is what it is. Maybe um, she's, be, she's so, doing much more important things now than Mormonism Live. Her career is taking off. It is. It is soaring at high levels. Yes. Uh, tonight, we thought we would bring on a really cool guest. We'll bring him on here in just a second. But we wanted to talk about doctrine. And I want to play just really quick two quotes and uh, just set the scene here before we bring our guest on. Because Mormonism has, on numerous occasions, tried to limit what doctrine is and isn't by putting it in uh, a box, you know, by defining it in a way that puts it in a box. And here's two quotes that I remember very distinctly uh, in my time uh, being active in the church, uh, just as kind of the gospel topic essays were starting to come out in that kind of time period. Here's the first 2013 then. Yeah. How few question their faith when they find a statement made by a church leader decades ago that seems incongruent with our doctrine. There's an important principle that governs the doctrine of the church. The doctrine is taught by all 15 members of the First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve. It is not hidden in an obscure paragraph of one talk. True principles are taught frequently and by many. Our doctrine is not difficult to find. 
He's, he's telling us. Um, and then the other one is uh, Elder way, D. Todd. Do you know what's funny? Yeah. When you play that and they don't have the video to watch, I have difficulty, especially in that first sentence, figuring out that's a man or a woman speaking. <laughs> yeah, that's that's Elder Anderson. So, so Elder, so it's got to be a woman. Yeah, it's a prophet, seer, and revelator. Yeah. And, and here's Elder D. Todd Christofferson. At the same time, it should be remembered that not every statement made by a church leader, past or present, necessarily constitutes doctrine. It is commonly understood in the church that a statement made by one leader on a single occasion often represents a personal, though well-considered opinion, not meant to be official or binding for the whole church. The prophet Joseph Smith taught that a prophet is a prophet only when he is acting as such. And so with that definition and the one prior, let's bring on our guest. This is the well-known uh, Charlie Harold. Charlie, how are you? Very good, thank you. Thanks for having Excellent. me on. Awesome. Glad, glad you're here. And so tonight we thought we would have a conversation around doctrine. And uh, let's start off by just, for, for a few people who don't know you, I was going to put up here on the screen, um, Amazon was the easiest place to kind of show where it is. But this is your book. This is my doctrine, The Development of Mormon Theology. Uh, I also know that you can get it at Coford Books. Uh, they're probably the original person who published it, correct? That's correct, yes. It's not yeah, Deseret. So uh, not Deseret, but it was carried in the Deseret bookstores for a while. Yeah, it was. That's And that's cool to know because that book was very formative. You know, I had talked to you years ago for an interview with Mormon Discussion, and it was right around the time your book had come out. And your book was instrumental, I think, for anybody who read it in recognizing that the theology of the church, it, its doctrine, has changed at almost every turn, that there really isn't a single doctrine that hasn't. And uh, wanted to get your thoughts. I mean, this book, uh, how long did it take to put together? Oh, wow. Um, like anything that you do, it takes years and years of background work, right? But uh, actually working on it, uh, I had to work on it around, uh, obviously, work and church callings and family and lots of other things. But uh, I think I probably spent a good solid uh, 15-year period working on it. Yeah. And you were telling us, you know, off the air as we were prepping for this conversation for the week, you know, during the week, you had uh, told us a cool story that we'd love for you to share here, but the book was published later than you had first intended. And uh, we'd love to hear about that. Can I back this up for just a second? This is me sticking Please. my nose in where it doesn't belong. Because I think it's really fascinating that I should be referring to you as Professor Harrell. Because you're a BYU professor, now retired. Is that right? That is correct. What did now you teach, by the way? Emphasis on the retired part. Yeah. Charlie, what, what, uh, what classes did you teach? Uh, I taught in the College of Engineering and Technology, uh, graduate courses in like computer-aided manufacturing, my specialization was computer simulation and modeling. Mm. Do you think it was easier to write a book like this being not in the like the theology department or the religious department, not being in the, the, the religious part of the school where they were kind of having conversations around church teachings? Was it, was it easier to do it kind of from a distance in a different department? Uh, yes. There's no way I could have written a book like this uh, as a member of the religion department. 
Yeah. In fact, I was sent as part of this, the story uh, when I showed a draft of the book to the uh, uh, administration of the school of the of the university. They sent me right over to the dean of uh, religious education to set me right. Gotcha. How did that go? Tell us about that uh, that meeting. So you sent them the draft, going like, "Hey, I'm I'm going to publish this book. Just wanted to give you a heads up." And what was their response? Um, I, yeah, I gave them a copy. I gave a copy to my dean. They like to be aware of things that could potentially cause problems or be an issue. Um, and I was called over to the uh, academic vice president's office. Um, they sat down with me, both of them, the associate academic uh, vice president as well. Um, and they were very concerned about it. Um, and they said that I should talk to somebody who is more of an expert in religious uh, studies in, in church doctrine and suggested that I go see the dean of religious of the religion department to uh, see if they could help me with some of the things that I was writing about because, of course, I was basically laying out the whole um, sequence of church doctrines and saying there's very little scriptural grounding for these doctrines, and they've been changing since the beginning. Yeah. Um, and just talking to the, uh, to the dean, it was very disappointing that they felt like the only way that I could do this right is to have it coincide, you know, be congruent with all the teachings that they were giving in their um, course studies there. Which is impossible, about, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I asked them about uh, uh, real religious scholars, you know, outside of BYU. Um, do I just ignore them? And then the dean launched into this uh, discussion about how hard it was for him to get anything recognized by the Society of Biblical Studies and couldn't get anything published and not respected because they give priority to revelation over scholarship. Mm. Mm. And, and they had, you know, again, you had this timeline for when you were wanting to publish the book and you ended up moving that because of some of this feedback that they had given you. What was that specifically? Yeah, that was in 2005, roughly. And the book had been edited or the manuscript had been edited uh, for a couple of years, ready to be published. And when the dean, uh, actually, it was the dean of my college, finally, that said, if you publish this, you cannot stay at BYU. Um, and so I thought, gosh, I've got about uh, six years to retirement. What do I do? Um, so I decided to just sit on it for a few years. And finally, after four years, I felt like, hey, this is just too important to me, uh, too important for, for uh, religious studies, for Mormon studies to just sit on it. And I decided to pull the trigger and get it published. Man, and then and it did what they said was going to happen? Did that happen? Um, it was crickets. Didn't hear a thing. Nobody said anything. I think there was a little bit of uh, worry that if they were to say something, it might 
cause more, you know, create more problems than it would solve. And what year did you say it was actually published? So it uh, was published in 2010, although the copyright in the book is for 2011. So it's been out for 12 years. Yeah. And, and honestly, I mean, four years is a big difference. I mean, you're getting to the point where they're in the middle of probably writing the gospel topic essays and they come out in 2013, start to. And so the church is almost itself having to confront its history right in the middle of the moment you're publishing the book. And I wonder if that may have played a part as well. Of course, we'll never know, but it is interesting. And so I'm glad you did publish it. I think it is a, it's a piece that I often refer people to in trying to help them see that doctrine has changed everywhere. Uh, because as you're going to point out tonight, that's not really the claim Mormonism attempts to make. And so with that, I, I would like you to um, go into wherever you want to go to get us started. Because uh, I think we need to kind of set up this conversation talking about doctrine itself. Can I ask a question? Please. What does God need with a starship? No, I'm kidding. I really want to ask a question of the professor. So here's here's the thing. Um, professor Harrell, when you say that the dean, by the way, was that Ellis Rasmussen? No, uh, at that time it was Terry Ball. Okay. So when they say to you that they prioritize revelation over scholarship, what I hear is, they prioritize they prioritize conformity over scholarship, right? Yeah, and and kind of what the church teaches, right? Uh, you know, exactly. What the church manuals. What of what of the prophets taught? Uh, and if you read most of the publications that come out of uh, the BYU Religion Department, it uh, addresses especially uh, books that cover the scriptures. Of course, this is changing a lot with. Uh, improved scholarship within the uh, religion department, but it used to be that they would uh, publish a book about, say, the Book of Mormon, and it would cite the Book of Mormon passage and have all the quotes by the general authorities on that particular package or passage, and that is the commentary on the Book of Mormon. You had mentioned that you felt this was an important book and that's why you stopped waiting after four years and went ahead and published it, even with potentially dire consequences. What is it about your book that you think is important? And why do you think you got these not so veiled threats that you shouldn't publish it by the Dean of Religious Studies at BYU? Uh, I think just about anybody that does a work like this does it for probably for their, mo their own interest as much as anything. Right. And, you know, as I put the book together, as I was writing the book, I was writing something that I wish I had had, say, 20 years earlier uh, when I was committing so much to the church and preaching the church and teaching the doctrines of the church according to correlation curriculum. Right. Correlated curriculum. And. You know, to discover that all of that needs to change. It's all wrong. Um, yeah. That's that's huge. And so I felt like this is something that members need to know about. Yeah, reality has to fit the definitions we give of all of this and the way that we explain it. And if if reality can be clearly shown to not be working the way it's being articulated, 
then there's a level of dishonesty. Like we're just going to stay in an echo chamber and repeat certain things we've always said, regardless of how history is actually unfolded. Yeah. Yeah. So it kind of ignores the facts. And I yeah. can't tell you how many times, by the way, I read your book too. Just want to make it clear. That was a number of years ago. Yeah. Two thumbs up, way up, Professor Harrell. I really appreciated your academic uh, exploration of something that I had not seen anywhere other than this book. And what it does is it takes every single doctrine that the church has, basically, and shows how it's developed over time, even since the inception of the church. Though I know you go back to Old Testament, New Testament, and then you come up into the church and the restoration through Joseph Smith and the permutations of each doctrine up to the present day, or at least as of the date that the book was published. So having said all that, I hear all the time or heard all the time, I still hear it, that doctrine is the truth, the eternal truth, and the doctrines of the church never change. Have you ever heard that before, Professor? That sounds familiar. Is that going to lead us at all into your startup? Yeah, in fact, um, I should say too that when you talk about how the book covers the development of virtually every doctrine, and, and certainly it's every major doctrine, I wouldn't say every doctrine, um, but to do it from Old Testament times through New Testament, um, Joseph Smith's contemporaries, the way that they taught it, the early Mormonism, and then later in Mormonism, you know, that's, that's really a, a monumental task and uh, really overly ambitious, I would say, to try to do all that in one volume. So um, I hope that with that caveat, people recognize that um, there's a lot that is omitted. That there's a lot more that could be said, but I tried to take uh, key changes, at least major changes and developments in these key doctrines to illustrate how those took place. And one of the reasons why I wanted to include Old and New Testament teachings was because I have, I have a, a major section of the book on proof texting, biblical proof texting. And I was so guilty of that myself. I mean, you learn in seminary and institute how to use you know, the, the uh, uh, scripture chases to find, track down all these scriptures that justify the, the apostasy, the restoration, church organization, all these things that when you go back and look at those scriptures in context, very few of them mean what we purport them to mean. Um, and so I thought that was very important also to share, that uh, uh, we should take the biblical texts on their own terms find out what real biblical scholars have said about these passages um, and then draw a conclusion based on that, not from uh, a current LDS teaching and then go back and apply that or impose that on the biblical text. So with that, RFM, what was your question? Oh, we're ready to dive in. Yeah, yeah. What is doctrine? What is doctrine? So that's a good place to start, and I do start the book out that way as well. Uh, if you Google the word doctrine, uh, the first definition that comes up is from the uh, Oxford English Dictionary, which basically says it comes from the Latin doctrina, which is teaching. And so it is basically 
the teachings or beliefs of a particular group, which could be a church or government group. Uh, for our purposes, of course, we're talking about religious doctrine. So that's a very general definition. And of course, in the church, we have debated the term, you know, what, what doctrine means over and over and over again for years. And I don't think there's still a good consensus definition that everybody agrees to. Um, in particular, what people want to know is what constitutes official doctrine. Or in other words, doctrine that is recognized by the church that um, is not going to change, that's absolute, et cetera, et cetera, which sets up some of the problems because how do you find that? Um, I think the, the clip that Bill played, which I think we should play again in just a second, but I do want to uh, bring out the fact that the church, if you look at the um, newsroom of the church, uh, the website that they have for that on approaching church doctrine. It has a section there which basically says that doctrine is um, the doctrine of the church is found in the standard works of the church. Um, so I'm going to come back to that one in a minute, but uh, I think the the clip, Bill, do you have that on? Uh, what constitutes official doctrine, Elder uh, Anderson's, I guess? Yeah, I've got it right here. Let me, uh, let me play it. A few question their faith when they find a statement made by a church leader decades ago that seems incongruent with our doctrine. There's an important principle that governs the doctrine of the church. The doctrine is taught by all 15 members of the First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve. It is not hidden in an obscure paragraph of one talk. True principles are taught frequently and by many. Our doctrine is not difficult to find. Let me just say there, Charlie. For, first off, when you say all 15 people have to teach it, I bet there's almost no teaching in the church that the current top 15 have all taught it. For instance, have all 15 taught whatever? Let's pick something out. I mean, there may be simple ones like the Book of Mormon's true. Right, We could probably find a place where all 15 have said that. But if we pick out the things even the church says, these are doctrine, we can trust these. It would be hard to find all 15 men have, having taught that thing somewhere in their uh, time as an apostle or prophet, seer, revelator. The other problem, too, is that we know you and I could sit here with RFM and list 50 things that all 15 men at the time taught that the church no longer holds as true. So the very definition he's giving there that we, you know, don't, you, you don't have to worry about these little uh, anomalies. You can trust the things that all 15 are teaching when the reality is that doesn't hold up either. It Your really thoughts? narrows the scope of what official doctrine is, doesn't it? Yeah. And, and, but it also, when you understand the history, you begin to question whether even this definition has any real viability to it. Yeah. So, so you have to ask the question, which 15, you know, is it the 15, yeah. 50 years ago, 1949, George Albert Smith, right? Right, right. Uh, which one is it going to be? And I think that's where the emphasis uh, is given to it's taught frequently and often. And uh, the implication is 
This is what we're currently teaching. It's what the current 15 leaders of the church are teaching. If it's not taught by the current 15 leaders, it's not official doctrine. Yeah, which means it's just a a moving Yeah, it's just a moving target, right? Like it's always changing. It's always something else. And all you can do is trust who says it now. But 20 years from now, some of what's being taught now will be disavowed as well. Yeah. Right. And I see it as a massive arrogation of authority by the current apostles. Of course, I see everything as a massive arrogation of authority by the current apostles. Yeah. But I think this merits some discussion only because who the heck does he think he is to trump past presidents of the church, which is what he's doing? His argument says it doesn't make any difference if a past president of the church said something. If we all today don't see the same thing, then it is not doctrine. And of course, the second thing is that the only reason they have for coming up with this strange definition of doctrine, and by the way, it's a definition that doesn't even hold up under their own test, which they have just presented, because they have two apostles saying this is the new test for doctrine, but all of them have to say it for it to be doctrine. Right. All 15 aren't teaching this. Right. (laughs) But just the very fact that you have to come up with this underscores the fact that there are past statements from leaders of the church and maybe more than one that they need to disavow, that they need to get rid of, that they need to declassify as doctrine. Otherwise, they wouldn't even come up with this. And he's basically tipping his hand by saying, oh, a past teaching by a leader of the church that's hidden in some paragraph. Yeah, he wishes it were hidden in some paragraph. The problem is it's not remaining hidden in some paragraph, thanks to the internet. And now they've got to try and deal with it without talking about it specifically and manufacturing a new definition of doctrine. Okay, those are my (laughs) thoughts. That's awesome. Yeah, so Charlie, where do we go from here? You wanted to go into um, some assumptions about doctrine and to kind of show like all the ways we've limited this to some sort of articulation that should fit in a box and it doesn't. Yeah, and in a way, if you think about it, and and RFM articulated this, that Elder Anderson is basically espousing a doctrine of LDS doctrine when he states what the criteria needs to be for it to be doctrine. Um, And yet uh, his own definition uh, falls on uh, the test that he gives. But if you look at uh, what I'm interested in and what I try to do in the book is look at the way doctrines evolve. And the first chapter, I talk about uh, some of the unwarranted assumptions and premises that we make about church doctrine. Um, And I could identify, for for purposes of this uh, discussion, the podcast, I came up with eight that I thought were pretty regularly promoted by the church as being sort of assumptions, underlying assumptions or premises of for defining doctrine. And one is that it needs to be scripturally based. Um, And that comes from the church newsroom, which states, I don't, this obviously is not a recording. We don't have a slide, but I'll just read it briefly. It says, our doctrine resides in the four standard works of the church, or standard works of scripture, uh, the Holy Bible, Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price, official declarations, 
and proclamations and the articles of faith. I'm not sure why they include that since that's really part of the standard works. Um, but what they're doing is trying to say that that's where our doctrines can be found. You want to know what our doctrines are? Read the scriptures. And what I found interesting about uh, that statement is that scriptures don't declare doctrine. Scriptures have a bunch of teachings, stories in them. Uh, oftentimes they contradict each other or they're inconsistent. So doctrine doesn't just jump out of the pages of scripture. It has to be interpreted. And um, since the scriptures aren't univocal, people have to select what passages they want to use to support a particular doctrine. So in the end, scripture does not, or doctrine doesn't reside in scripture. It resides in the church's interpretation of select passages, um, fragmented segments of scripture that are often taken out of context and then cobbled together to construct a doctrinal view. Uh, I don't know if that strikes any either view to as being uh, problematic, but just stating that it's found in the scriptures. Yeah, only in that having studied Mormon history now for, um, you know, two decades plus, it becomes clear that any at any point in time, the theology and doctrine of the church is completely different from any other moment in time. So even today, to be compared with, say, 15 years ago, would be a monumental difference. The way we approach uh, the sexism in the temple, the... Um, just, just 15 years ago, we were overcoming the idea that Jesus was born on April 6th, which we get out of the DNC. But once you understand the context of the DNC, the interpretation changes. And, and so it, it becomes obvious the church wants to be seen as being consistent, and the reality is it is anything but. Good point. You know, the April 6th thing that you mentioned, uh, a problem with that is once an interpretation is made, by an authoritative figure, it sticks. And so, you know, addition, future prophets, future uh, uh, general authorities, they read those statements. Again, you know, what do we have for commentaries uh, for the standard works? They're the statements of past uh, leaders of the church and their commentaries on passages. So it just perpetuates those uh, misinterpretations, unfortunately. Yeah, you know right. the extent that all 15 teach it. Yeah. And one of the things I find that it's, uh, well, I think it's a good thing that if you're going to anchor teachings in the scriptures, I, I think that's what Protestantism has done for a number of hundreds of years now. So it's a bit strange for the LDS church to be saying the same thing. But they don't really mean it is one of the problems I have with it. Okay. They're saying it, but they don't really mean it. For instance, we can find examples both ways immediately are they really still saying that if a kid sasses off to his parents and that kid should be killed because that would be doctrine that's found in the standard works that would be from the old testament we could find a host of other things that we might find equally as objectionable if we took it as doctrine today and then more recently well of course the whole church i mean the big selling point of the church is we've got a prophet we've got 15 of them and that's part of the problem but we've got prophets 
and a prophet with a capital P on the earth today who can receive revelation from God for our day. And that's, that's huge. But then when even recently the subject of heavenly mother was brought up and praying to heavenly mother, this was done, I think by Gordon B. Hinckley back in the early nineties. It was done more recently in the last general conference Saturday evening session by elder. Oh, it's not, it's Rinland elder Rinland. And instead of talking about revelation, they just go back to the New Testament and says it was good enough for Jesus to pray to his father. So that's the end of the discussion. So when they wanted to anchor it in the scriptures, they will. When they don't, they won't. So I'm not seeing this as particularly um, helpful to define doctrine as being residing in the scriptures. In addition yeah. to the issue that you brought up, that there's nothing in the scriptures, there's nothing in anything that's written. It can only be understood through interpretation, and that requires a reader and an interpreter. Yeah. And we know that you can prove anything you want out of the Bible, for example. You know, people have done that. So, Well, the devil's done that. The devil yeah. cites scripture to suit his purpose. Oh, there you go. I think that's the Merchant of Venice. And, of course, referring to, I think it would be Matthew chapter 4 and the temptations in the wilderness. Wow. Right, I guess. Well, the, the I'm sorry, I, I didn't mean the temptations that uh, Satan or gives to Jesus. Oh, right, oh, yes, he's been out yes, fasting yes. for forty days in the I wilderness, see. and he comes I to see. him and he's quoting scripture gotcha. to try and tempt Jesus yeah. to do the wrong thing. Yeah, yeah. So, and the devil resides behind the, or no, the serpent resides behind the cross. Whatever it is from Don Quixote. Anyway, but yes, absolutely. Anybody can prove anything from the Bible. And I've got a ton of churches that I can point to to prove the point. Yeah. You, you made, I mean, you wrote down, I don't know, it's got nine claims or so that we're going to try to, to get through as many as we can tonight. RFM and I uh, talked off the air that if we needed to get to a, a second, you know, a part two, we could do that easily enough. Um, and you were willing to do that as well. So we'll see how far we get, but you, you came up with nine assumptions, nine claims. And as I read through these, as I prepared for the episode and read each of these, I can remember moments in my Mormon life when these things were taught to me, that this was the expectation I was to have around doctrine. Would you start us off and take us into the first one here, and uh, we'll see where this goes. Sure. Well, the first one is that uh, uh, doctrine um, derives from the standard works. Uh, they're scripturally based. Uh, a second one is that uh, church doctrine is absolutely true and this is something that um, has been debated a lot in discussions in the church as to whether or not we can rely on everything a prophet says we have the quote by joseph smith a prophet's only a prophet when acting as such well when is a prophet acting like a prophet hopefully when he's talking in the capacity of a prophet but uh people want to have wiggle room there to be able to, to narrow that and, and have a, a way out. Um, but it's interesting that even Joseph Smith said, I never told you I was perfect, he said, but there is no error in the revelations which I have taught. So even though we talk in the church about prophets being fallible, that they make mistakes, when it comes to their teachings, and especially in their official capacity, 
I think members are much less reluctant to say that they're fallible um, when they're speaking in their capacity as a prophet. Um, and this brings us to the uh, clip from Russell M. Nelson, what he said about prophets. Bill, do you have that? Yep, so here it is. This should be it. Sometimes we as leaders of the church are criticized for holding firm to the laws of God, defending the Savior's doctrine, and resisting the social pressures of our day. But our commission as ordained apostles is to go into all the world to preach his gospel into every creature. That means we are commanded to teach truth. In doing so, sometimes we are accused of being uncaring as we teach the Father's requirements for exaltation in the celestial kingdom. But wouldn't it be far more uncaring for us not to tell the truth, not to teach what God has revealed? It's precisely because we do care deeply about all of God's children that we proclaim His truth. We may not always tell people what they want to hear. Prophets are rarely popular. But we will always teach the truth. Yeah, we could stop. Yeah, there. I'll tell you, you know, this claim number two, church doctrines are eternal truths. You only would have to go back, easy ones. I mean, there's all throughout, right? But an easy one for me to go to is 1947, 1949, George Albert Smith, first presidency, both in private correspondence with Dr. Lowry Nelson, as well as in a first presidency letter signed by the entire first presidency. They send out, um, they are articulating in the private correspondence and sending out this first presidency letter that clearly states that the disavowed theories of the 2013 gospel topic essay on race and priesthood, that those very teachings were in that generation taught by all 15 men and were held as doctrine of the church. And, and so this idea that church doctrines are eternal truths, it, it falls flat on its face. It just isn't true. And there's too many examples to name that would make it clearly laid out that it doesn't hold up as being true. They're not eternal, right? Yeah, yeah. I think what the church has done is... Um, yeah. At the same time as they're proclaiming that doctrines are eternal truths that never change and the doctrines of the church never change and the prophets always teach you the truth because that's what God has told us to do. Um, at the same time they're doing that, there's this other thing that's running alongside of it, which is things are changing all the time, as you've demonstrated in your book, Professor Harrell. And it has become a pastime uh, or at least a cottage industry in the church to come up with, for, come up with explanations as to why it is that doctrines have changed over time, whether it's speaking as a man, whether it is, um, oh, it's a clarification, not a change, whether it's, and now it's uh, the number of people who have to say it, and it can't be anybody who's dead. Ezra Taft Benson took care of that back with his 14 fundamentals of following the prophet. Can't be any dead prophet. It's only the living prophets who count. Now it's all 15 living prophets who count. They all have to be together. And now we're in the strange position because I joined the church back in 1978 and I went on my mission in 79 to 81. And I will tell you for a fact, and I know that many people who are listening will back me up on this. Mormons, we used to criticize and make fun of the Catholic church and the mainline Protestant churches 
because they did not have revelation. They did not even claim to have revelation. Instead, what they did was they got their high-ranking priests together, and then they would have a council. And then doctrines were decided by majority vote. And we used to use that as exhibit A of what the apostasy looks like because they didn't have a prophet who could go to God like Moses did on Mount Sinai and get the real answer and come down and give it to the people. No, they have to get together and debate and discuss and finally come together on something and boom, everybody signs it, it's doctrine. And now I turn around today and I find out that the LDS church that used to make fun of the Catholic church for doing this and marking that as a sign of apostasy is now engaged in doing exactly the same thing and saying this is how doctrine is established in the Lord's church. Right. And they were probably doing it at the time they were teaching you that as well, RFM, right? Like behind the scenes, while they claim like we've got a prophet and the other guys did this Nicene Creed and a bunch of other creeds. In the meantime, we all took the apostolic charge and we all decide to make changes based on unanimous agreement or majority vote. Yeah, and there's been a flux over time, and I don't know all of it. I was talking with Professor Harrell about this this morning, and very briefly speaking, it used to be, it seems, that when Joseph Smith was alive, Joseph Smith proclaimed something, it's doctrine. You need That's one it. person to say it. And we still have that teaching today. We'll still say it, yeah, but we don't do it anymore. Real. We don't yeah. seem to do it anymore. I don't think we do it anymore. There are so many things that are said that are not done. And so what happens, Joseph Smith, one guy says it. He's the prophet. That's God's mouthpiece, um, whether by my own voice or by the voice of my servants, right? It is the same. And then you get into a period of time where, and I, I'm not going to break this down too much because I want to hear what Professor Harold has to say about this. But let's uh, skip Brigham Young and his um, uh, attempt to be a prophet like Joseph Smith, which didn't go over so well with a lot of the saints. And then we get to the position where it's not the prophet, it's the prophet and his two counselors. And if they agree on something, that be establishes doctrine. When I joined the church, there were, I mean, we knew about first presidency statements. There's a collection of first presidency statements in a book that I saw. And I looked at it and I said, this has got the real doctrine in it because that's how doctrine was established for a period of time in the LDS church. And it may have been for half a century or longer. If you have the first presidency all agreeing on something, that becomes doctrine. And in 1909 and 1916, we had first presidency statements on the origin of man and Joseph Fielding. No, Joseph F. Smith, F. Smith. Mm -hmm. was the president. And his two counselors signed it. And that's what made it binding on the church was that not just the one, but the three. And now we come up into this, this brave new world that has such apostles in it. And now it's not just the top three, it's the top three and the next tier of 12. So it's 15, and they all have to get together to agree to something before it becomes doctrine. And we're in this strange position where, as far as establishing doctrine is concerned, the borderline between the first presidency and the 12 has seemed to become porous and even evaporated completely. So that now people talk, even people in the church, even leaders in the church, refer to the first presidency and the quorum of the 12 as if because they functionally are one big quorum now. And we'll hear it talked about as the Q15 or the quorum of the 15. They're the ones who make the decisions now. It all has to be counsel. It has to be unanimous. Your thoughts, Professor Harrell? I think you're exactly right in looking at the evolution. By the way, uh, just as every individual doctrine in the church has a history and an evolution to it, uh, the 
doctrine of doctrine itself has a history and evolution. And I think you outlined it uh, very skillfully there. Um, so, yeah, it just makes it very difficult um, to determine what exactly should we take as doctrine. I think the part of the statement from Elder Anderson, too, was that, that doctrine's easy to find in the church. Uh, I don't know if that was him or um, someone else. But, you know, if you think about it, that makes it pretty difficult to find if you have to track down whether all 15 have taught it. And uh, it just it makes it more and more difficult to nail down what doctrine is. You know, there's the statement um, trying to define LDS doctrine is like nailing jello to the wall. Right. It's, it's that difficult. That's the, the analogy that's used. And it, it really does apply. And I was struck by the title of the, the subject on the Church Newsroom website. What was it called? Approaching? Approaching a doctrine, I think it is. What is with that verb? Approaching. It's like you're going after the end of the rainbow and you can never actually get there. You, you're always in a perpetual state of approaching it. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think we have that. Uh, by the way, victory for Satan. Just FYI. Oops. Yeah. <laughs> as we talk about shifting and changing doctrines approaching mormon doctrine there uh, i think it's a little ironic if you if you scroll down there a little bill on that uh approaching mormon doctrine where they that paragraph right there uh notice it says at the last sentence in that paragraph isolated statements are often taken out of context leaving their original meaning distorted. So are they talking about the way they approach doctrine as taking passages out of context? I just thought it was kind of humorous that that was kind of tacked on to the end of that paragraph where they're talking about this is how we do doctrine and how we approach doctrine. And it says that it almost suggests that they are the ones who take the passages out of context. Yeah, I think they want the membership to take the blame, right? Like it's members who just off in their own private studies in their home are coming up with all these crazy interpretations. But the reality is it was in the Gospel Principles book. It was in the Gospel Sunday School book. It was in the class discussions that we had, and we all had our sources for where these things have been said over time. And and. It, it's easy to lay it at the feet of members, but as you're pointing out, it really is the leadership's fault. And that's the one sentence that can never be said, right? Yeah. Yeah. There's a huge irony there. And thank you for catching that uh, professor Harrell. Could they just say Adam God theory and get it out of their system? Because it really bothers me <laughs> that they can't say it. And of course they want to say it's only one isolated thing. It's taken out of context. And I, I hate to break it to you, but if you actually talk about what it is you mean, then a response can be formulated and given that, hey, it's not just in Journal of Discourses, Volume 1, pages 50 and 51, that Brigham Young said this. Yeah, good point. And it's a good one to bring up because we have on the record Brigham Young saying he knew by the Spirit that that teaching was true. And we have another quote where he says the members of the church know by the Spirit that this teaching is true. And hence, again, we'll get into this later with some of these other assumptions, but 
you're often saying like, hey, the Holy Ghost is the final thing that tells us. And the reality is uh, leaders and members have been wrong about what is doctrine since the beginning of this church's inception. Right. Yeah. And, and maybe, Bill, with that, we could we could move on to the next Please. Uh, uh, assumption, which is yep. that um, these doctrines are confirmable by the Holy Ghost. So we're saying that the prophets declare doctrine or the 15 declare doctrine by the power of the Holy Ghost and that members can know if the doctrine is true by the power of the Holy Ghost. So the problem, as you point out, uh, point out is that there are examples where prophets claim to be speaking by the power of the Holy Ghost, and yet their teachings are later rejected. So how do we deal with that? Uh, and there are many examples of that. Um, yeah. And, and the difficulty, Charlie, is that you're trying to say, hey, you guys, you can trust us under these circumstances. And the reality is there are plenty of counterexamples that show that they can't be trusted under those circumstances. And hence, how can any of us at any given moment know that a prophet is acting as a prophet when he's speaking as such? Because we've been wrong so many times in the past. Joseph Fielding Smith has been wrong when he has spoken and thought he was speaking by the Spirit. Bruce R. McConkie, who is an apostle, not a president of the church, but still labeled prophet and seer and revelator, misspoke so many times. Joseph F. Smith misspoke. Um, uh, Joseph F. Smith, when he goes to the Reed Smoot hearings, the things he says there counter the very things that are going on. It, it's all throughout Mormon history. And I think the average member goes like, I just want to know when they're speaking as a prophet so I can know when to trust it. And, and the reality is you just can't. Right. And can I just say, this is not supposed to be rocket science to figure out when a prophet is speaking as a prophet. It's a very simple proposition. It's been made intentionally complicated by the apologists for the church. And that includes most of the members, I think, as well, to some degree or other. But if a prophet, if the president of the church is speaking in church, in general conference, he's speaking as a prophet. It's that easy. What the distinction is, that if I'm talking over the fence to my neighbor about that darn dog down the street, and uh, this kind of stuff for the weather. I'm not talking as a prophet. If I am, you know, just talking in the grocery store to somebody, I'm not talking as a prophet. That's easy. And I think that's what originally it was supposed to mean, which is that there are times when a person who's a prophet is not speaking as a prophet. But when he gets up in front of the church and is declaring doctrine, he's obviously speaking as a prophet. There should be no confusion about that issue except for the fact that later on that changes. And now we have to complicate this whole issue of when is a prophet speaking as a prophet? Well, we don't know until that teaching gets changed. Right. Yep. Right. Okay, well, let's move on. Um, okay. Oh, just, um, yeah. The other thing with, uh, because it's eternal truth, um, the claim is frequently made that the doctrine is consistent throughout scripture, throughout the prophetic teachings. Um, there is a quote by Bruce R. McConkie where he says, and I don't, Bill, I don't think you have a clip of this. Yeah, I, I got this right up here. Oh, good. So, yeah. 
Yeah, so seek to harmonize scriptural and prophetic utterances. Let me go up just to show you the title of this one. It is Finding Answers to Gospel Questions, Elder Bruce R. McConkie. And he says, every truth in every field in all the earth and all eternity is in complete and total harmony with every other truth. Truth is always in harmony with itself. The word of the Lord is truth and no scripture ever contradicts another, nor is any inspired statement of any person out of harmony with an inspired statement of any other person. That just flies in the face of Mormonism. Yeah. And of course, the underlying assumption here, again, is that doctrine is equivalent to truth. Uh, you know, an important distinction to be made is that when we talk about official doctrine anyway, all we're saying is that this is the doctrine that is recognized by the church, which they believe to be true. But to say that it is identical to truth uh, is still a stretch because yeah. there's just too many inconsistencies. It, it just doesn't hold up. An easy one to go to is in official correlated material and in talks by leaders in general conference, members were told that exaltation meant they would get their own planet someday. They would be the creator of and ruler of worlds. The church today says, no, you don't get your own planet. Sorry. And, and so like you're pointing out, from moment to moment, decade to decade, century to century, Mormonism isn't believing or holding or teaching the same things it did before. It's not consistent. Yeah. Oh, right. And that's another way of uh, distinguishing it. Is it a policy or a doctrine? Well, if it changes, it was a policy. If it hasn't changed yet, it's still a doctrine. It's kind of the way they do it. And then when um, it changes, it becomes a policy. Yeah, right. Right. And I see Bruce R. McConkie saying this. And, you know, I used to eat up everything he said with a spoon. But I, I look at this now and I think, aren't you the same guy who believes in the Articles of Faith, one of which says that we believe the Bible to be correct insofar as it is translated correctly, We uh, the Word of God. We yeah. believe the Bible to be the Word of God insofar as it is translated correctly. And yet he's talking about there's no scripture that contradicts any other scripture and so his definition right there at that point is contradicting, I think, an article of faith, which he obviously knows and believes. And it seems that there's an attempt on his part and the part of others to find some kind of anchor to hold on to, to nail that jello to the wall so it stays. And when you stop and you look at each one of these, which Professor Harrell has done, you find out that none of them stick on the wall. They actually all slip off just like the jello. So, so his comment about all these things being consistent is itself inconsistent. Uh, yeah. Just doesn't hold up. <laughs> yeah, totally. All right. Number five. So number five is related, but instead of just being self-consistent or internally consistent, it's the belief and the claim that uh, of that doctrine doesn't change, that it is immutable. So it doesn't change over time. But in fact, as I show in my book, uh, every single major doctrine of the church has changed with time. And this is especially um, evident if you go back to biblical times and compare the doctrines of today with what people believed anciently. They're just, there's, just huge amount of evidence of change. Um, and of course, RFM, as you point out, again, the, the explanation that is given 
oftentimes is that it's not a change. We've just, um, it's a clarification or they'll be able to reinterpret scripture and that's done frequently. That's the whole uh, concept of proof texting is that you can take a passage of scripture and twist it to fit any particular belief you wanted to, you want to almost. So that's a definite challenge for the church. Yeah. And we've got this Hinckley quote. Do you want uh, us to play oh, this yeah. one here? Yes, so yes. I'll put this up on the screen. I find this one interesting because you juxtapose it with Nelson, who seems to be doing everything in an effort to do the opposite of what Hinckley did or do better than what Hinckley did. Right. And there's this idea that doctrine doesn't change. And so listeners may go like, where did we teach that? Well, we're about to get to it. But then juxtapose that with Nelson in the current 15 saying the restoration is ongoing. If you thought we were all done, no way. We're going to, things are, you know, hold on to your, buckle your seatbelt and hold on because this year is going to be a bunch of cool things happening. And next year is going to be even more and just stay with us. Take your Um, vitamins. Yeah, take your vitamins, right. So here is, uh, here's President Hinckley. Our membership has grown. I believe it has grown in faithfulness. We lose too many, but the faithful are so strong. Those who observe us say that we are moving into the mainstream of religion. We are not changing. The world's perception of us is changing. We teach the same doctrine. We have the same organization. We labor to perform the same good works. But the old hatred is disappearing. The old persecution is dying. People are better informed. They're coming to realize what we stand for and what we do. So there, doctrine isn't changing. Meanwhile, look at what Nelson's done. It it, it changes. Uh, We used to say the garments couldn't be altered, and they have been. We used to say the temple ordinances came straight from God, and we can't alter them. We have. Um, there isn't a single thing, as your book points out, that, that hasn't changed. And anytime these guys stand up and say, our doctrine is eternal, it's true, we can know by the Holy Ghost, like every single clarifier they give has exceptions to the rule. It's like they don't even know how to define it. Yeah, yeah that, that was a great quote from uh, President Hinckley about doctrine never changing. Do you know if he said that before or after he said, I don't know that we teach that? <laughs> Because I'm not clear on the timeline. <laughs> I believe it was after. Oh, okay, good, good. The yeah, other thing which, is, if you actually take makes it the, worse. <laughs> if you take the one sentence he says at the beginning, by the way, that makes uh, just watching him kind of makes me a little nostalgic. I want that more. I mean that seriously. Was, yeah. But um, you take what he said at the very beginning, and then you splice it with what he said at the very end, and here's what you have. And I wrote it down. We lose too many dot, dot, dot. People are better informed. <laughs> that, that was the only oh, true thing you. I think he said. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Let's move on and, to claim, claim six, should we? Okay, let's do that, Charlie. Um, this is one that uh, basically suggests that um, doctrines, if they do change, and we can't call it change, so we're going to call it uh, doctoral um, uh, refinement, it's (laughs) always progressively better. So God is leading us towards greater light and knowledge. 
revelation is always cumulative, right? So doctrine, as it does get modified, it's just building on itself, getting better so that it's consistent with the earlier part. Line upon line, precept on precept. Exactly. Um, And that's just kind of ingrained in us uh, all through our membership in the church. But in reality, there really is no preordained path along which doctrine unfolds. Instead, it uh, zigs and zags, uh, takes unforeseen twists and turns. And if you look at any individual doctrine and how we teach it today and trace it back to its roots, you see that it could have gone off into several different directions. And it's almost just luck of the draw that it ended up being the way that it is today. So we have no idea and, and we have no criteria to measure whether or not a particular doctrine is getting better or is just randomly changing. Yeah, I think a good example, and I don't know that we would say it's any kind of fundamental doctrine, but this idea that, you know, Mormon is a word they ran with, and, and today Mormon's a victory for Satan, that idea kind of, at least maybe not, um, I'm, I'm stammering only because I don't know that I want to call that a doctrine, but there are other examples, but it's this idea that, you know, you, you put a stake in the ground, you say, this is what we are, this is what we do, Um There are plenty of statements on uh, homosexuality. There are plenty of statements on uh, people of color. There are plenty of statements about who the Lamanites are, plenty of statements about uh, what the book of Abraham is. And it's not like they're going like, oh, let's just tweak it a little bit. It's like they realize, oh, my goodness, science, data, the lost and fallen world have all shown us that we're off base and we're not on track. Hence, we're going to just rearrange things in in a way that's completely opposite of the original idea or thought or teaching. And and so what you end up with is not a modification or a slight uh, tweaking or improvement. You end up with something completely different. As you point out, whether Orson Pratt lives longer or stays in the 12 to begin with rather than getting kind of kicked out. And all those things make a huge difference on how things end up unfolding. Uh, as you point out, you you change one little point, and um, it would be a completely different church on that issue, wouldn't it? Yep. Yeah. My perception from reading what church history I have and living what church history I have is that, as with other organizations, it tends to be the more forceful, dominant personalities who are able to put their imprint more readily on Mormon doctrine, um, even on Mormon doctrine the book. And it seems like 90% of the people who are in leadership are kind of passive and they really aren't committed to anything necessarily doctrine wise, except maybe sort of just keeping the, the hamster wheel going. But every now and then you'll get a, uh, a Bruce R. McConkie, you'll get a Joseph Fielding Smith, you'll get a, I think, Dallin Oaks in there. Um, and they will push and push and sometimes do things that they're told not to do because there really don't seem to be a whole lot of ramifications and push their way into uh, establishing their doctrine. I think that's what uh, Dallin Oaks is doing currently with the family proclamation and especially the line that I would bet you $5 he crafted originally and put into that along with pretty much the rest of the family proclamation that says gender is an essential attribute of pre-mortal, mortal, mortal, and post-mortal identity. Uh, 
It because he like can't talk sense. about the family proclamation without quoting that. Yeah. yeah. What are your thoughts, Professor Harrell? Yeah. In, in fact, uh, he also stated in a conference talk that it's founded on irrevocable doctrine. Um, so it's almost like, where is that doctrine taught? Um, you can't find anything about the eternal uh, gender in, in Scripture. There's nothing in Scripture that talks about that. Uh, where is that coming from? And yet, here's an example. Uh, all of a sudden, we talk about what official doctrine is, and we have this doctrine about eternal gender that all of a sudden is irrevocable, and, and it's, it's a self-evident truth. I'll also say, too, the, the two commandments that Mormonism lives under, us as the members promise not to speak evil of the Lord's anointed. And among the top 15, uh, they cannot nor ever will apologize. And those two things kind of sharing the same space um, make it really difficult for us ever to really doctrinally correct anything. In other words, we we can't throw the past guys under the bus exactly. So we have to leave their statements back there. And if people draw attention to them, we have to figure out some way to reconcile them. But we don't believe those anymore. So we've made changes. Here it is today. But because we're not allowed to speak evil of the Lord's anointed, and that can be construed as telling the truth about their either dishonesty or their contradictory nature, um, of their statements, then we're all stuck kind of pretending like all of it goes together when it doesn't. Yep. All right. Anything else here with number six? Um, let's see. Six, 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 six. Uh, I think that kind of sums it up. I, I, I'm always struck though with the idea that uh, there's a sense of superiority in, of doctrine among Latter-day Saints where we feel like our beliefs are so much more elevated, so much uh, so superior, so much more superior uh, to doctrines taught in other religions. And again, it's it's part of this mentality that uh, all the revelation, all the teachings that come forth from the church uh give us so much light and knowledge that other religions just do not have. And the reality is there's no way to tell um, whether or not a particular doctrine is superior to any other doctrine taught by any other religion. Yeah. Um, yeah, totally. So let's go on to, to the seventh claim or premise okay. of church doctrine. Uh as promised in the ninth article of faith, uh, we expect that God will continue to reveal many great and important things pertaining to the kingdom of God. This kind of suggests that there's going to be ongoing revelation of doctrine, uh, new truths rolling forth. Um, so this is where we get the quote by President Nelson recently. Uh, do we have that one up? Yeah, so right there. We're witnesses to a process of restoration, said the prophet. If you think the church has been fully restored, you're just seeing the beginning. Man, that's pretty telling. There is much more to come. Wait till next year. And then the next year, eat your vitamin pills, get your rest. It's going to be exciting. Can I say how I don't get offended by a lot, 
but I find that problematic. Let me use a different verb or adjective, whatever. Anyway, so I was, I mean, I'm not that old in the church. I'm 40 years, okay? I know it sounds old to a lot of people, but this church is about 200 years old. And just 40 years ago, I was told over and over, and President Hinckley said it live on uh, TV, that when it comes to the restoration, basically everything was restored through Joseph Smith. He was the prophet of the restoration. And everything significant or important or critical to anything was restored through him. And President Hinckley said every now and then there'll be something that we have to sort of tinker with or monkey with or adjust. But very clear that Joseph Smith was the prophet through whom all of the saving doctrines and ordinances were restored. And now I'm starting to see these kinds of things from President Nelson. And I'm looking at it not only as a complete reversal of what's been taught by the church during my time in the church, but also it's like, okay, we're going to open the door here and say, look, we're going to make a lot of changes. And therefore, we're going to talk about this restoration as not only as not accomplished through Joseph Smith anymore. We're going to talk about it as something that's ongoing. So Katie, bar the door. We've got carte blanche to make any changes that we want. And President Nelson seems to be very excited about doing so. I just want, you made a point, I forgot about this quote that you just pointed out from Hinckley, and I remember it now, I was trying to find it while you were talking, but there is this moment in time, I think it was one of these interviews, Mike Wallace or something, where he stated that the prophet Joseph Smith had given out all the fundamental information, all the groundwork's been laid, pretty much everything's there, and he's almost suggesting like this greater prophet, lesser prophet role in the restoration. Joseph Smith did all the major hard lifting, and from time to time, the other 15 of us will fix a little thing here or there. I, I couldn't find it, but I remember that quote as well. That that runs very different to what Nelson is saying here. It, it's essentially they're contradict each other. So anyway, good. I'm glad you brought that up. That's a, that, that was one out of the memory bank that I hadn't had. So thank you. Yeah. You know, even when uh, Brigham Young came along, uh, I don't think the members expected much out of Brigham Young. They felt like Joseph Smith was the prophet, right? Yeah, And he's the one that restored the gospel, brought the truths back to the earth. And uh, everything else was just commentary on Joseph Smith. That's why Brigham Young referred to himself as just a Yankee guesser. is because he was was setting himself up as a lesser prophet than Joseph Smith. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good point, Charlie. So the reality, of course, in President Nelson's vision of the restoration, this ongoing restoration... Uh, they consist primarily of just trivial minutiae, right? It's not really truths about the kingdom that uh, we would expect to see or that Joseph Smith, the kind, the, the kind of restoration that Joseph Smith was all about. Uh, and in fact, if you look over the past several decades on doctrinal matters, there's actually been a rollback so that we know now, uh, now we know less than we did before. When you look at things like Lamanite identity, the age of the earth, uh, the time of the second coming and millennium. You know, I can remember when we knew pretty clearly how the celestial clock worked and it's even stated, outlined in the Doctrine and Covenants, but now we don't talk about that uh, with the specificity like we used to. Uh, why blacks were denied the priesthood and temple blessings, the, the geogra- Book of Mormon geography, uh, plural marriage is a requirement for exaltation. Uh, 
how translation works with the Pearl of Great Pride or Book of Abraham, and now uh, more and more with the Book of Mormon. Um, we thought we knew all that. That was doctrine that was taught, but now we're receding and falling back. Uh, location of the Garden of Eden, Adam, God, as you mentioned earlier. Uh, the fact that we could become just like God and not only get our own worlds, but create our, create our own worlds. Uh, those are doctrines that uh, we either don't know about or we don't teach anymore. And clearly, if it's not being taught by the 15, all of the 15, we can't accept it as doctrine, official doctrine. Right. I myself have been surprised by the accumulation of instances that leaders of the church and general conference and other venues have said, we don't know, we don't know, we don't know all these different things. And also having the church go from taking a position on a subject to officially not taking a position on a subject. I see that happening a lot more often, whether it's the identity of the Lamanites, no position, whether it's where the book of Mormon geography took place, no position, whether it's whether a God formed humankind through evolution in some way, no position. So what are we paying these guys for is what I want to know. <laughs> Isn't it interesting You're, to what you both are saying? The whole point I was taught when I was 17 years old, the missionaries came into my home and they taught me the six discussions. I was told that by having prophets on the earth, we would get more and more clarity. We would get more and more knowledge and we could know more and more things about the kingdom of God. And the reality is that in a church led by prophets, seers, and revelators, we seem to be less certain and know less and less every day. Yeah, I think it's section 50 of the Doctrine and Covenants that says it's supposed to grow brighter and brighter into the perfect day. Yeah, that, so that may be me. talked about on an individual basis when we think it would hopefully apply to the church being led by a prophet of God as well. Yeah. We, we know a whole hell of a lot less today than we did 30 years ago with Bruce R. McConkie and the kind of finishing up of Joseph Fielding Smith, didn't we? There was an exhilaration to knowing so many things. Yeah. We knew the circus was bad. We knew playing cards weren't any good. Tarot cards, Ouija boards. We knew all the things. The we had circus? All of it. What are you yeah, talking about? The circus? No, I'm, I'm just joking. That part I make, I make up. My, oh, okay. I knew my about, buddy Chris I knew about always jokes cards. about Bruce R. McConkie had an opinion on everything. And psychotherapy. Yeah, psychotherapy. And hypnosis. Yeah. That was bad. In, in, a, in a church that has hinged its theology on its members becoming like God, we don't even know where we go when this life's over to do all that work anymore because the planets are are not up for us to have anymore, right? Like, so where do we do this? I, it, it just is a strange thing that things keep getting pulled back because modern Mormonism recognizes that we sound like a bunch of weirdos in light of kind of juxtaposed against Scientology talking about Thetans and volcanoes and, you know, Mormonism is kind of in that same vein. And these guys seem to be really uncomfortable up back to Hinckley. We don't teach that anymore. I don't know that we teach it. The modern Mormonism seems to be really uncomfortable with all the things past Mormonism was certain of. I don't know if we have, I'm sorry. I don't know if we have the video clip and we probably don't, but I am harking back once again to elder Rindland from Saturday evening session, last general conference. I'd like to get your take on this, Professor Harold, because I'm sure it's occurred to you. When he says as a prophet that we don't know diddly squat, that's not his words, about Heavenly Mother. We know next to nothing about her. And it would be presumptuous of us 
as apostles, prophets, seers, and revelators to ask God for any further information about her. So this is what we're left with. And just don't pray to her, okay, guys? Why can't they ask? Why because is it presumptuous? presumptuous. They're, they're prophets, seers. Their job is when the church has a question for them to go have the conversation with God. Isn't it amazing in the Doctrine and Covenants, it's full of revelations that were given as answers to very specific questions that were posed to God. And yet, uh, you know, a, a question as important as our Heavenly Mother, uh, you know, that's a co-equal with God himself. Why can't we ask? Why is that off limits? It does not make sense. Right. Why are we going to hurt God's feelings or offend him in some way by going to him with a question when we talk about how that boy at 14 years old went into a grove of trees and did the courageous thing of asking a question? Um, we, we don't seem to, you know, one hand doesn't seem to know what the other hand's doing right now. Yeah. Uh, and that seems to be the case for about the last 15 years. Yeah. Well, you're muted, RFM. I was just going to say in the most general conference talks, or at least many of them, it seems that the one hand is very concerned about what the other hand is doing. Yeah. 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 <laughs> True too. All uh, right. Um, it, anything it, else there with eight? No, no. Uh, and, and just moving on and, and the, everything ties into this last one. Um, number eight, which is the. Um, number nine, the, you mean? Sorry. The, I think it's eight, isn't it? The last one's number nine. I think we just did number eight. Okay. I've got, I've got uh, as a number eight, but we'll call it number nine. We, we all have different notes, but it's the one of certainty. It's the claim that we can be certain. And in these truths, these teachings, these doctrines are things that we can be certain about. You know, the thing that really perturbs me about, the church is not the fact that doctrines change. I don't care. I don't care what they consider to be doctrine or what they don't consider to be doctrine, but to speak about it as though they know absolutely all about it. And yet in reality, you know, the boots on the ground, it just doesn't show up that way. Um, why can't they just acknowledge that these are opinions you know, this is what we think we should be doing or what we should be, be believing. This is what we think about Heavenly Mother, but we don't know for sure. Uh, but instead, it's all couched in this aura of certainty. We know for sure about these things. Um, all these clips that we played, I mean, those were statements of certainty and certitude. There was no equivocation at all. Uh, so that to me is the final kind of premise or assumption about all church doctrine is that they can be known with certainty and that we should talk about them with certainty. And there seems to be no allowance for a general authority or a church leader to say, we might be wrong about these things or these doctrines might change. We don't know for sure. Instead, we have um, the statement by Elder Oaks that the doctrine of gender is founded on irrevocable doctrine. 
There's no question about it. So a couple years back, um, uh, a very well-known uh, Protestant minister, progressive Protestant minister, Peter Ange, wrote a book called The Sin of Certainty. And he helped expose the whole problem with Christianity today, fundamentalist, more um, conservative Christian groups, with this whole aura of certainty that they have to have about everything that they believe. And I think we could, as members of the church, learn a lot by considering whether or not that's a healthy attitude to take. And if it is an attitude that is defensible, for one thing. So <coughs> I think I'm losing my voice. But uh, that's the last one. Let me say this. Um Members of the church, because they invest their belief in the fact that these men are prophets, they speak to God, I can know the path back to my Father in heaven by following these uh, 15 men. If these 15 men were forthright and honest and transparent about just how much they get wrong and how much their past colleagues got wrong, then it seemed apparent that they wouldn't get the sort of obedience, the sort of tithing, the sort of, the sort of loyalty and um, people willing to kind of just go for the ride thinking these guys have got it all right. If they were to be honest about just how messy this all is and how much they've gotten wrong. And again, how much their past colleagues have, it, it seems like that really is the impetus for why they do things the way they do, because they need the members of the church to be obedient, to be loyal, to be all in, to give up a lot, to sacrifice a lot of time. And if people understood the amount of mistakes these men have made, they would be questioning, questioning decisions at all levels and wouldn't so easily give up their individuality to an entity that asks for a lot. Right. Well, I think there's a passage from the New Testament and maybe Testament and maybe from one of the Pauline epistles that says if the trumpet give an uncertain call, who shall prepare himself for the battle? Does that yeah. sound familiar? Oh, yeah. Used to use that a lot in the mission field. Yeah. Mm. So we are we are built from the bottom up on I know statements and I testify that. Yeah, that's yeah. The, that's the strength, isn't it? I think, Bill, you, you hit the nail on the head that. The power, the strength, of the, the persuasive power, the magic is in the certainty. Um, if, if the brethren were to be honest and say and, and have a little epistemic humility, um, where would that strength go? Where would that ability to um, persuade people to pay tithing, to... Uh, clean the chapel, all those things, where would that go? Right. Right. But you and I and RFM and, you know, thousands and thousands of others just wish they would be honest and lay, lay it all on the table, good and bad, and allow people to make decisions based on a much more realistic view of the church. Because again, as the gospel uh, principles manual says, that when you obscure the truth or hold back parts of the truth, that is also lying. That's also dishonest. 
And so when these guys articulate a perspective of the church that doesn't fit reality, but which gives them cover, th- there's no ifs, ands, or buts. They're being dishonest in doing that. Um, if this is the Lord's church, if this is the restoration, God will figure it out. He'll, he'll have enough people to do what he needs to do. That's because he's God. Uh, right. What does God need with a starship? Right. Right. And um, so if we give, if we just give people all the data, if the church is true and it really has priesthood power, it really has prophets, we'll figure it out. But these men seem to not have confidence in that. Hence why they articulate a view of the church that doesn't match reality or historical data. Well, I think that they have painted themselves into a massive corner over time. And it's a corner of their own making that they painted themselves into while at one and the same time proclaiming to have doctrinal inerrancy. They will not be wrong about anything that's doctrinal. And at least as long as they all agree on it, or as President Nelson says, prophets speak the truth, they always are going to tell you the truth. While at the same time, they've got this history that the church has established with its own church leaders of changing on every major doctrine since the inception of the LDS church. And that's where... Uh, Professor Harrell's book comes in, and your book seems to me to lay an axe at the root of this entire, I'll call it a facade, of doctrinal inerrancy, and that the doctrines never change in the church, that it's been promoted by church leaders ever since I was a member and before. What do you think about, is that one of the reasons you think your book was so important? And while you're answering that, why did you write this book in the first place, Professor Mm, Harrell? Love it. Those are good questions. Um, And a short answer is uh, on the on the doctrines. If you think about um, the doctrines almost being like a house of cards and these foundational premises that we just talked about, that's what they're all built on. And they all collapse if that foundation collapses. so it's, it's so vital to maintain that uh, narrative of inerrancy, of immu- immutability of doctrine, uh, of absolute truthfulness of doctrine, et cetera, all those things that we identified. Uh, because if you don't, the whole house collapses and, and that can't happen. They right, and if the, they, they don't want to let that happen, yeah, uh, I was just, just going to say the doctrines of the church are a house of cards. I like to think of Mormonism live as a gust of wind. Yeah, <laughs> and Knocking your book, by out. the way, Professor Harrell, is a freaking hurricane. Yeah, I, I just want to give the number out, and then we'll let you answer the other question, which is why did you write the book? But Mormonism live, uh, give us a call. We'll start putting some callers in the queue: six six two six six seven six 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 seven or 662 Mormons with an S on the end. Um, and you'll get into the, the uh, automatic uh, call screener and we'll get you on the show here. We'd love to take some calls at the end. Back to RFM's question. Why did you write the book? Um, okay. First of all, I would like to acknowledge all the little pop-up comments that, that appear on the screen. Yeah. Those are awesome. And yeah. uh, some great comments. Um, don't feel like you're being ignored. I hope. Oh yeah, they everybody everybody in this chat loves uh, participates pretty at a pretty high level. 
So I sort of uh, talked about the reason for writing it, which was really, this is the book I wish I would have had growing up in the church and known about because I was so indoctrinated with the, the standard narrative and the whole set of beliefs about doctrine that we just talked about this evening. Mm -hmm. uh, and it took me a long time to, you know, study, reading, but it can happen. I mean, it's a paradigm shift, right? But that shift can occur through information, through education. So it's interesting how the church kind of is its own worst enemy that way. They want to preserve, you know, keep the doctrine pure, as they say. And yet at the same time, they're saying the glory of God is intelligence. Learn all you can, you know, study, seek learning by faith and study. But when you do that, you meet reality, you meet the facts, and they just don't, do not stack up uh, to what the theory, I'm going to call it theory because it's, it's the ideas about doctrine, the assumptions that are just not uh, valid. Two things really quick. I think the church could legitimately say, we have met the enemy and it is us. And number two, follow-up question for you, Professor Harrell. You say you wish you had had this book that you wrote when you were younger. If you had had this book that you wrote when you were younger, yeah. what difference would that have made in your life as a Mormon? That that question goes pretty deep uh, because, you know, I have withdrawn a lot of my activity from the church as a result of this knowledge. Um, you know, it's painful to to go to church, to hear these narratives, to hear the members, you know, different speakers uh, pat Mormonism on the back as being um, you know, and Dan Vogel used the term Mormon exceptionalism, which is what it is. And it's just, it grates on you after a while because it's just not warranted. We can learn so much. We could, we could get along so much better with people outside of our faith if we were just more humble about our own beliefs and willing to um, accept the diversity of beliefs that exist in the world and people's uh, right and, and the validity of their beliefs insofar as they are just as valid to them as our beliefs may be to us. Uh, but to be able to accept that takes a paradigm shift. And when you're locked in that LDS narrative of uh, exceptionalism, really is what it is, you feel like... Um, we have the truth. Uh, if you leave the church as a member of my family, now we have an empty chair at the table. And what a, what a great loss. That, that's horrible to have that kind of a feeling. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I hear what yeah. you're saying. There are a lot of members of my family that would prefer an empty chair to having me at the table, but still your point is well taken. <laughs> so you learning, you learning, uh, a closer reality of what the church is has led you to be less active. I assume less believing to some degree, like you now have probably questions and doubts, which I don't know which of those are bad words in Mormonism. I think both are, but this idea that like you've made changes and you've stepped back and it's not exactly the way you were taught when you were young. That's right. 
And, yeah. and so when you, uh, you know, I, I can no longer accept the truth claims of Mormonism. Yeah. To be candid, because they yeah. just um, don't hold up. They don't. Um, that isn't to say that Mormonism isn't great as a, as a social kind of organization for those who need that particular type of social integration. Um, but uh, it, when it comes to doctrine and being dogmatic about that doctrine, it just, it's uh, repulsive. There's this strange thing. We've got uh, backyard professors in the queue, um, but that's the only call so far. So if anybody else wants to call in, um, again, that's 662-667-6667 or 662-MORMONS. It's this interesting thing that happens. I'll use Dan Hardy as an example because most of the people in the chat will know who that is. You may not, Professor Harold, but he's a very nuanced member. He, If we were to sit down and go like, hey, what about this? He would go, yeah, I don't believe that's historical and I don't believe that's real and I don't believe prophets work this way, but he's still in the church, right? And he, and he still thinks it's true at the end of the day. And there's this interesting thing that happens when the church teaches a dominant narrative and whether it changes or whether members on their own decide to become more cafeteria style in their own beliefs, Every one of them, whether it's the leadership of the church, whether it's the curriculum, whether it's the teachings in general conference, whether it's the members and how they choose to select how they believe in it, every single one of those facets changed because science imposed it, because uh, historical analysis imposed it, because um, um, the, the lost and fallen world imposes it, Right. And it seems like there's this block in their minds. Take Dan Hardy, for example. There's this block in his mind that he doesn't realize he's backtracked on everything because the outside world has imposed that his church wasn't right. And then when it comes to the final conclusion, the final moment of going like, this doesn't hold up, it's not true. Those same people don't have the ability in their head to go, I've had to pull back at every turn because science and the world and history imposed that my church's narrative wasn't true. And they only walk it back to the moment that it's kind of ambiguous, right? They take it back to the moment because to get into the ambiguity and decide that also probably isn't true is just one step too far for them. And it, it seems for on the outside, once you've deconstructed it and you step back, you go like, why wouldn't I just take the next logical step? And go, I know, I understand where all this goes. It's almost certain it doesn't go where they say it does. So let's stop making excuses for it. That is a great point, Bill. Yeah. Well articulated. The oh, only well, thing I know about Dan Hardy is he looks fantastic in a tailored dress shirt. He does, man. He looks good, doesn't he? Mm -mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. Seeing how different things. Or, or people are attracted to different things about the church, right? I mean, yeah. some people, for some people, the truth claims of the church are important. To others, eh, they're secondary. Yeah. And some people, they could care less about doctrine. It's, it's, I love the church. I love the feeling I get when I'm at church. Great. Yeah. Yeah, but guys like Jim, Jim Bennett's another one. Jim Bennett wants to say, I, I know the church is true, Yet he's walked back everything because the world imposed that his prophetic leaders were wrong on, you know, on the curriculum, on the historical analysis, on the theology. Like he'll admit, he'll concede almost every point. 
except at the end he'll go oh and we just somehow lost the show so off the or the call-in studio um so i'm going to try to put that back up but uh, so so backyard professor you lost the backyard professor i did so if uh if he wants to try calling again here in just a second something happened and i don't know what it was so we'll i don't know either it. but i like the feeling we get it i get a church too when i go which isn't too often anymore it's that wonderful soporific stultifying feeling that choosy mothers choose <laughs> yes nice. and so now we're covering for a technological problem the backyard so, professor had said that i could sit at his table in the comments and that was so sweet of him i can't believe you've lost him now if you had like leapfrog somebody behind him over him in the queue for taking the phone call that i could understand but losing him entirely is beyond the pale, I think, Mr. Real. I just looked over at my screen and the entire thing just shut down. So I reopened it, folks, if you want to call back, Backyard Professor, if you want to call. Um, it, it just seems strange that on the moments where it's like demonstrable, like, oh, yeah, I, I just know the Earth isn't 6,000 years old. So I'm going to go ahead and side against what the leaders have taught in the past. I'm going to believe in an Earth that's billions of years old. It's only once you take a thousand of those which Bennett's done and Hardy's done. It just seems so easy to just go 10 more. All you got to do is go 10 more and and you give it all up. It's all gone. If you just let those last 10 go, you've already given up a thousand. You already don't believe they're right on Lamanite DNA. You already don't know. You already know they're wrong on the book of Abraham. You're you've sided with the catalyst theory because it it makes it ambiguous. You side with this because it's ambiguous. You side with that because it's ambiguous. Just take one more step and, and it all comes crashing down. It's all psychological, right? I yeah. mean, people have already decided I'm in the church and I can deal with all the, um, what, the, the cognitive dissonance, whatever it might create, because I'm in the church. That's just, yeah. that's where my mind, that's where my head is. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, all right. Let's get to, are you guys okay if we get to a couple of calls? All right, perfect. Let's start off with the backyard professor. Carrie, is that you? Are you there? Yes. How are you? Good. Backyard professor, you're on Mormonism Live. What's uh, what's your thoughts okay. on Charlie Harrell? I love Charlie Harrell. Uh, I have actually talked to him before, and I'm not sure if he remembers me. I doubt he does, but I was doing a review of his book and just castigating him for being an apologist because there were so many contradictions in his book. And your show here really clarifies his approach and view. And yet uh, he told me, he said, well, I think just like you're thinking, And so it's all good. But let me just also say one thing real quick. Dr. Harrell, when your book was so wonderful to read, because when I was an apologist with FAIR, one of the things that got me in trouble was I began studying the biblical scholars. And I started asking the other FAIR members why are we the ones not writing this fabulous biblical scholarship? The Hebrew, the Greek, the Arabic. I mean, for crying out loud, what I'm seeing now is what I call now 
the Mormonizing of the Bible, and I am completely against it. And so when your book came out, I saw this as a, for better or worse description, a second witness to my discovery that I was not off cue and that another actual scholar could see the problematic way that Mormons and Mormon scholars approach the scriptures, especially the leadership. One other thing I will say, and then I'll let you say something. Sorry, I'm on a roll. It's your fault. You guys accepted me on this, so I love you too. You we know? tried to ditch you, but you managed to fight your way back. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> By the way, backyard professor, I don't know why you complain about the Mormonizing of the scriptures, because were you not aware that Jesus himself was a Mormon? Right. I was just told that last year. Can you believe that? That's astonishing, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyway, um, I had a wonderful conversation with John Twettens. Uh, he was a scholar at Farms, and we, we got to be real good friends. And I went down there once or twice a year and spent the whole day with him while he was researching. He actually told me that the Ezekiel 37 prophecy has nothing to do with the Book of Mormon. The stick and of Joseph him, and the oh, stick of on, uh, Judah, right? Yes, yes. And I said, oh, come on, John. And he said, no, no, I've been through the Hebrew. I, you're studying the Hebrew. You go through it in the Hebrew with me, and we will see the whole historic context also does not justify the interpretation, but they will not let me publish this. Now, when I confessed that to Radio Free Mormon in my interview with him almost a year ago now, can you believe that, RFM? Almost a year ago, man. That's On a crazy. night just like tonight. But uh, Yes, yes. And Dan Peterson heard about that interview, and he ran it and raved about. He was so mad at me for making fun of his good friend, John Twetness, and talking bad about him and all. And I didn't say anything bad about him. I just said he was not allowed to publish the Ezekiel 37 research. And then your book, Dr. Harrell, shows up. And I discover, much to my pleasant surprise, and yet horror, I mean, let's face it, your book is somewhat disconcerting to a lot of people for the reasons you have wonderfully elaborated on tonight, there is not one doctrine that is not technically justified, I'll say, based on biblical scholarship and research. And so I just wanted to say it's nice to see that my my intuition when I was studying, well, the Joseph Fitzmyers and the Frank Moore Crosses, you know, the Dead Sea Scroll scholars and the uh, all those guys, uh, Lawrence Schiffman and all those guys, their scholarship just did not match the Mormon biblical scholarship. And then your book comes out. The thing that astonished me was you were still at BYU. So I thought you were a professor trying to defend Joseph Smith. And that's why I took issue with your book. Now I tell everyone to get your book. And I'm going to tell everyone in chat listening right now, you are cheating yourselves 
if you do not get Dr. Harrell's book. This is my doctrine, The Development of Mormon Theology. It is one of the most spectacular books I have ever read, and I'm not just saying that, and it's a big one. He leaves no stone unturned. If I remember right, it's over 500 pages. So thank you so much for your hard work. And now I will shut up if you want to say something to me. I apologize. But anyway, Where should I, send I love your, your book. Check? Where should I send your check, Chair, uh, Carrie? Carrie, yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll get with RFM and I can. You can send it to me, made out to me, and I'll make sure that Carrie gets it. Oh, wait a minute. No, no, no. I want it made out to me, RFM. I'll arm wrestle you for it. I have what is sometimes called the lawyer's disease. I see money and I think it's mine. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Thanks for the call, Carrie. Well, I see books and I think they're mine. So anyway, yeah, yeah I've taken up enough time off. But no, 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 I, I just wanted to say thank you. You are appreciated. And I do love your book, and I have written about it quite a bit online. And I will do – I do uh, video lives also on Sunday evenings. Oh, what time is that? What time is that, channel. Gary? 6 p.m. Mountain Time okay. on the Mormon Discussion, Inc. site. I do Mormonism Lives, YouTube and channel. I promise your book is in my queue. I will be talking about that because – it's just so wonderful. So anyway. Thanks, Kerry. Well, Kerry, you're the funnest person Thank you, I've you ever guys. listened to in uh, in the podcast you give. Yeah, love it. So he's wonderful. To. But wait until oh, he pins well, you up against the wall you. at a fair conference and starts his video camera. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to video you, Dr. Harrell. We'll get together someday soon. Love it. Thanks, Kerry. Thank you. I appreciate you. Bye-bye. All right. We'll let other callers go now. Just a quick note, <clears throat> he mentioned how great your book is, which we all agree with. I was thinking today, RFM, about doing an episode on, we'd have to be really fast, but the top, say, 50 books or 25 books in Mormonism. And I was running through my head because I was preparing for this conversation with uh, Professor Harrell. Um, it's clear, Professor Harrell, by the way, your book would be in that top 25 most important books in Mormon history. Um, I think there's no ifs, ands, or buts. I was thinking of D. Michael Quinn and Greg Prince and... By, by all means, your book is up there. And so for anybody who wants to understand how everything has changed, RFM, you and I were having a conversation a month ago, two months ago, where we were talking about this idea <clears throat> that everything's changed. And I said, man, maybe there's some things like the sacrament prayer. And you were like, no, um, Moroni gets a certain prayer for the sacrament. And then Mormonism comes along and gives a different prayer for the sacrament, slightly changed. There is no doctrine in the church. Um, the early theology in, um, oh my goodness, my mind went blank, but the, the, the Joseph Smith that we've used it in the past. It's not, it's not in the sac- uh, standard works, but it's, um, uh, like the King Follett sermon, but what, teachings to the prophet Joseph Smith. No, but something else like King Follett sermon that we use sometimes when it's convenient, but we don't use because it says God is on spirit. perfect. And, uh, so there, For my there next are all trick, these, I'm going to read Professor Harrell's mind. Yeah, there are all these moments where things are used and then they're not, and they're trustable, but then they're not, and it's just a complete mess. Anyway, by the um, way, one of those books should be my memoir. You you should Radio write Free it. Mormon. Yeah, top twenty-five Broad, church books. Uh, uh, subtitle. I haven't written it yet, but it's going to be in there. Subtitle. 
broadcasting behind enemy lines. Oh yeah, that's good. That's good. I like it. Can yeah. I use that? It's it's your brand. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's go to uh, Doug. Doug, you are on Mormonism Live. Uh, you're here with uh, Professor Harrell, RFM, and myself. What's on your mind? Hi, this is Doug. Uh, I just wanted to ask uh, Professor Harrell what he thinks the most egregious doctrinal change is. Ooh, what's the most egregious? Wow. Uh, you know, that's that's a little different question uh, than or, or from what the most dramatic change is. The most egregious one would be, as I take it to be to mean um, the the one that has created the most damaging or has had the most damaging effects, maybe. Mm. Yeah, it could mean that yeah. or it could be the most severe. What, what did you mean by it, caller? The most significant change, like the yeah, most dramatic I, change? I, in, or... in his opinion, yeah, in his opinion, which one has caused the most damage? Wow. Um, I think, boy, <clears throat> there's a lot of, I think, I think the priesthood ban uh, and, and temple denial for, for blacks, I think that is that is really egregious. Is that the most egregious? You know, thankfully, there's a change back from that. Um, what else? We just picked a different group to pick on after that. No. Yeah, we're kind of in the middle of the temple ban thing for black people, except it's with um, LGBTQ yeah. folks right now. Yes. Yes. No. So I, th yeah. I think I think the uh, okay. the priesthood ban had the most far-reaching. I mean, it affected so many people um, unjustly. Uh, I think that was tragic. Thanks. Can I can I add something here because it really needs to be said and not just thought by me. We, or I should say, I need to never forget. That while we talk about uh, the the priesthood and temple ban of black people since reversed, that we don't know why it ever existed now, even though we've renounced the reasons, and we're in the middle of the LGBTQ ban, which will uh, temple ban, which will end up uh, being reversed in future years. I could give you the date, but I want you to have want you to have something to look forward to. And uh, but from beginning, well, almost the beginning, I think, till now, and for the foreseeable future we have a female priesthood ban that is ongoing that we're still in the middle of. And I say almost from the beginning, only because I think Joseph Smith showed hints of giving women the priesthood. And I think he accomplished that in some small measure, which I think he meant to proceed with, but we'll never know for sure. But it's for sure that women do not have the priesthood. And really uh, we do talk about, Blacks in the priesthood. I talk about blacks in the priesthood and the temple ban. I talk about LGBTQ people and temple bans. And um, I think just it needs to be said that there is a massive priesthood ban for no revealed reason, no basis. Suddenly I'm talking like William Shatner. <laughs> but <laughs> <laughs> it's that weird. What is, you know? But that's at least 50% of the church. I think it's got to be more than 
50% of the active membership of the church who are the women who don't have the priesthood for no freaking reason other than they don't have a PD. Yeah. It's, it's that strong uh, force that the patriarchy has had since Old Testament times. And that's something that is still ingrained in our culture that we can't get rid of. And, and yeah. you know, in fact, I was going to say that that's the most egregious change, but that has been with us from almost the beginning, that, that powerful patriarchy influence that says men rule and women, you're equal, but not really. Yeah. You, um, RFM asked me this in regards to our prep for the show. I just want to make sure it gets asked. But RFM wanted to know if you've been keeping notes since the publishing of your book and if you have any intention of utilizing that material in updating your book for like a revised or second edition. Uh, I have been keeping ongoing notes um, and we'll have to see what I do with them, I guess. Gotcha. Okay. I, I don't have any concrete plans to do something with them. I think there's just so much with what is already available just just the the maybe the reframing of things uh the way it's presented uh you know i like what people like dan vogel do with his uh little video clips that really gets a point across very forcefully and succinctly i think those are powerful yeah so I, what is I'll... the biggest change that you've seen since your book was published hmm. Um, I, I haven't seen a lot of big changes, you know, like we talked about, um, the changes has been so minuscule. Um, I can see and sense shifts. Um, I see the brethren being more open. I, you know, they're forced to, they, they've got the essays out now, um, I think their willingness to allow academics to uh, explain Mormon doctrine. Um, Elder Ballard, I don't know if you recall his uh, response to somebody who asked him about uh, a doctrine of the church. He said, you'll have to ask some of our scholars about that. But I think just the willingness to accommodate some scholarship, some any level of scholarship in the church is a very healthy move forward. Yeah. Yeah. Scholars used to be so called so-called scholars by Boyd K. Packer, and then yes. they became uh, the people who are referenced in the small italicized print at the bottom of each of the essays now. We'd like to thank these unnamed scholars in this unsigned essay for their work in trying to cover the church's arse. Yeah, I'm not even sure if they're dated. Yeah, um, yeah. some Denton in the chat had asked why we thought Nelson had gone to the change of the word Mormon being a victory for Satan. And he was suggesting, uh, I can't remember trying to get away from the book of Mormon, which I, I don't think Mormonism can ever really exactly do, but I do think there's a lot of negative. If you search the word Mormon, you come up with a lot of things, right? Mormon stories, Mormon discussion, radio free Mormon, uh, that's just prevalent. And Mormon think in tons of other websites. I, th I think at least from my point of view, and you guys are welcome to chime in, but Denton, my two cents is that they've done it because 
They want to be another, at some point, we want to work slowly towards being mainstream acceptable. And we want to distance ourselves from people recognizing the negative connotation of the word Mormon. And hence where I think you're seeing the church begin to um, try to make it unclear exactly who they are when a non-member is looking them up for the first time. You're muted, my friend. I just tried an experiment based upon your suggestion, Bill, and I pulled up Google and I typed in the word Mormon. Don't do it. Don't do it. No looking. No looking. Guess what comes up first? Um, I'm going to say Mormon stories. No. The church's official website. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And by the way, you can still type <laughs> in LDS.org and you get redirected. I still enter LDS.org because it's three letters. I'm not going to type out. Yeah, nobody does. I know. Nobody so, does. so the funny thing is that the algorithm is such that if you type in Google for Mormon, the first thing that comes up is the church's official website, the church How much of do you think Jesus the church, org, How much do you think the church paid for that algorithm? I don't know, but I, I expect it's more than a coincidence. Yeah. Yeah, they're not willing to let go of the word either. Exactly, huh? No. No. Um, and then also, Harold, you're, Charlie, you expressed an interest maybe in doing videos at some point. I, I know a really good platform. You just couldn't use Wednesdays at 6 p.m. But if you're if you're interested at some point, um, we'd love to have that conversation with you. If that's something you think you could do. Yeah. Um, we've got one more caller. So we've got Matthew, and then we'll wrap up here. Matthew, you're the last caller. Mormonism Live. What's on your mind tonight, my friend? Hey guys, this is uh, Matthew Turner. My handle is Honder on the chat. But um, first of all, I just wanted to testify to the truth of DC Comics and Star Trek. And I'm just really worried about RFM and his devotion to Marvel. Yeah. I've gone to the dark um, side on many things, Matthew. <laughs> I invite you to join but me sometime. I'm intrigued by this. Okay. Well, <laughs> actually, I like Marvel, too. <laughs> See, it's but, already um, working. I'm intrigued by the title. What's that? He said it's, it's already working. working. Go ahead. By the time you're done with your comment, yeah, you'll hate DC. Feel it. I can feel it. So, uh, in, you know, the title "This Is My Doctrine" comes from Third Nephi 11, and I just remember as a missionary so many years ago, reading that over and over and over again, and thinking, you know, Jesus here is saying, "This is my doctrine." It's not very many items. You know, he talks about avoiding contention, then he talks about believing in Christ, being baptized, receiving the Holy Ghost um, as a purifying fire, and then he talks about the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost um, testifying of each other, and then he talks about becoming as a little child, and then he says, you know, if you add or subtract from this, then you're not of me, and I just, you know, and yet in Mormonism, everything, you know, the doctrine is whatever we say today is the doctrine. And, you know, even way back then when I was a missionary in 1988 to 1990, I was thinking, you know, there's something off here. What did you think was off, Matthew? The fact that Mormonism doesn't go by its own scriptures. Yeah. Yeah, you have a little bit of the words of Jesus. Yeah, you have a little bit of an issue with context where in the Book of Mormon, it teaches the doctrine of Christ. And, you know, Christ is talking about his gospel and 
and giving a, a definition of it. Of course, in my mind, that's Joseph Smith telling us what the doctrine consists of because it goes back to the five finger exercise of, of uh, the early uh, disciples of Christ where it's faith, repentance, baptism, you know, gift of the Holy Ghost, endurance to the yeah, end, and, you and you're saved. That's my doctrine. That's my And the whole message of the Book of Mormon is anything more or less than this cometh of evil. You know, there is no more gospel than that until 1832 and 36, the temple, you know, portion of the gospel. There's always things that get added. But that wasn't the uh, intent originally. For my book, by the way, the reference I cite for This Is My Doctrine is DNC 1067. So it just so happens that that is a common phrase that's used when introducing doctrine, where the Lord says, this is my doctrine. Um, so it, it, it's not necessarily tied to the Book of Mormon reference of Christ uh, saying it. Professor Harrell, I'm sorry. I know we still have Matthew on the line, but I wanted to follow up with something. I well, know I, you I, choose I your dropped, words. I dropped the call, just FYI. You're good. Just because okay, I thought we were you. done with him. Yeah. Uh, I thought you were saying I had to unmute myself. Mm -hmm. um, but <laughs> I know you choose your words carefully, Professor Harrell, but did I just hear you say that you believe the Book of Mormon was actually written by Joseph Smith? Uh, it was dictated by Joseph Smith, not written by him. To okay. be precise, to be precise. But are you saying that Joseph Smith created the content of the Book of Mormon? Uh, that is my belief. Mm -hmm. yeah. Do I know how he did it? No, I don't know exactly how he did it. Uh, but, you know, in for me, the measure of the truth or... Um, the truthfulness of any work is is the content, not how it was created. Uh, I don't care if it was even translated from golden plates, which I don't believe. Uh, but all you need to do is examine the contents of the Book of Mormon. And as I point out in my book, I show all of the reasons why the Book of Mormon is a 19th century work. It's not the work of, or, or the words of ancient American Indians, yeah. natives. Yeah. Love it. Oh, Any other thoughts? Me, I think that's someone at your door, Professor Harrell. I think there's two gentlemen in conservative suits carrying they've a, paper they've got they an envelope. you. That's yeah, right. they got an envelope. Something's about to happen. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you, man, it, it is this system that tells you like you can't talk about these things, right? There is that there is that fear that is in here in the room with uh, any of us who have these kinds of conversations when you go like, look, I'm just going to follow the data. I'm going to follow the evidence. And uh, it doesn't it doesn't seem to be widely acceptable within the church to do that as, it, as per it, your publishing of your book and the four year hiatus you had to put it on. It is strange that we do live in a church where everybody understands what I'm saying. And we understand that just by Professor Harrell saying what he said, that it could potentially put him in some kind of jeopardy vis-a-vis yeah. -vis his membership in the church. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to ask Professor Harrell, what is it that makes you so bold 
to say this publicly? Um, I don't feel like I have any vendetta against anybody. I'm not out to attack the church. There are just some observations about things that I would like to see in the church, uh, things that I would like to see with the brethren of the church about being a little more honest in their dealings with the membership of the church. And uh, so if, if the church doesn't like that kind of an attitude, I'm fine with that. I, I don't have... I don't have a need to please anybody. Yeah. Love it. Love it. So you just got to please yourself. Try it. You got to be true to yourself. Yeah. Love it. Thanks for your time, uh, Professor Harrell. It, we got through all nine of those, and uh, they really are assumptions that we've been taught honestly, that we've come to, we've arrived at honestly, and, and they all deserve to be deconstructed because the evidence says as much. Um, I really appreciate your time tonight. RFM, any other thoughts from you? And then I'll give a moment. If Charlie's got any concluding thoughts and we'll close it up. I think that's pretty much everything that I have to say. I do want to thank Professor Harrell for coming on the show and sharing with us not only your scholarship, but also some of your, your beliefs and where that scholarship has led you in your life. Yeah, thank you. Okay. Any other thoughts from you? I'd just like to express my uh, gratitude for being on the on the show and bear my testimony that I know you guys are true and yeah. uh, keep up the great work. Thank you. We'll finish with a little funny quote from uh, President Hinckley. Uh, by the way, Bill. Yeah. By the way, I'm going to take that quote from Charlie Harrell. I'll be putting that as the top blurb on the back of my upcoming <laughs> memoir. I love it. Yeah, Charlie. His his review of the book. Yeah. This I know that you are true. true. Yeah, I know this book is true. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Okay, everybody, have an awesome night, and uh, we'll we'll leave the show here with President Hinckley. My dear beloved brothers and sisters, it is with a heavy heart that I come to you today. <clears throat> Excuse me. I come to you now with all open-mindedness and an open heart to tell you of the truth of the so-called self-proclaimed prophet of the Lord, even Joseph Smith himself. I declare openly, this man was a fraud. He married other men's wives, took children to wife, practice an, excuse me, practice an abominable, <clears throat> You are so going to hell for that one, though.